Thank you for tuning into Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I enjoy this podcast very much. I enjoy providing for you an opportunity to talk deeply about gospel issues, examining deeper the history of the church, and helping you and me through our faith transition and this faith journey. But please, feel free to give me feedback as well. Please email me today at realmormon at gmail.com. R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. Share your thoughts, suggestions, questions you have, anything we can do to make the podcast better. Because in the end of the day, this podcast is both about you and me. God bless you. And now on to what you've been waiting to hear. David Barker, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well, and I'm, I'm appreciative of being with you. Excellent. Great to uh, to have this chance to uh, talk about your book. But before we get into the book itself, would you mind just giving us a, uh, a brief bio about yourself, and then uh, we'll get started into talking about the book you wrote. Yes, I'd be happy to. When I was a boy, elementary age person, I decided that uh, I guess I was kind of skeptical. And some of the things that I'd been taught in church growing up in, as a Latter-day Saint uh, didn't seem to fit, in my estimation, with what I was being taught in school. And I first noticed things like some of the dating of things and some of, like, I remember the, our teacher in elementary school showing us <clears throat> some pictures of the petrified forest in Arizona. And I was fascinated by rocks and loved those things and decided, well, wait a minute. Why, why did those logs petrify while most logs that I've seen, when they fall over dead, they decay and rot away? And didn't have, they didn't have a good answer. And then there were other things. And then in junior high school, there were some things in my science class that just didn't quite sit right. And uh, background, as far as I'm concerned, I guess I'd have to say I've been a skeptic all of my life. And uh, then I did go on a mission and to the state of New York, Camorra Mission. And towards the end of my mission, it dawned on me that, hey, wait a minute, here I've been teaching the truthfulness of the scriptures for almost two years. And one of the real key things in the scriptures as far as scientific implications is concerned is Noah's flood. And that kind of struck a chord with me. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I've had history classes, world history. I've had science classes. Not one of them in public education mentioned anything about Noah's flood. And I thought, well, if the scriptural account is really true, there has to be some evidence of that and has to be some record of that. And that led me to, as I finished my mission and went home, a multi-year study on Bible chronology, Egyptian chronology, which led to scientific writings on the subject and really has led me to some interesting and fascinating studies over the past 45 years or so. And as I, well, for my profession, I was a CPA bank examiner and so I was trained to question things. If somebody told us something as examiners, then we were supposed to try to verify it by documentation and evidence to support that. And so I've kind of applied this to my study of reconciling the conflicts between science and religion. And so my background is different in that I'm not a scientist, although I've studied a lot of science, but 
it is helpful because I wasn't restricted as many scientists feel they are uh, from exploring certain topics and especially topics involving religion. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I'm just grateful to have you on today because I think that this is an important topic. And I think often in, in Mormonism, within our history, we have different leaders who have spoken out on subjects such as the age of the earth or, or obviously we, we kind of have this consensus on the flood and even speaking about, you know, evolution and death before the fall and all of those kinds of things. And I found your book very interesting. Uh, we're sitting down today with David Barker, author of Reconciling the Conflicts, Science and Religion. And uh, want to start off maybe by just pointing to maybe some quotes on various pages and getting your thoughts on each of these. You wrote on page, uh, I think it's 27, uh, Elder John Widstow stated this. He says, the church holds that the methods used by science to discover truth are legitimate. But he also cautioned, in this wholehearted acceptance of science, the church makes, as must every sane thinker, two reservations. One, the facts which are the building blocks of science must be honestly and accurately observed. Number two, there must be a distinct segregation of facts and inferences in the utterances of scientific men. Readers of science should always keep this difference in mind. Even well-established inferences should not lose their inferential label. It is unfortunate that scientific presentations are frequently out of touch with Elder Widstow's admonition. I, I want to ask you two questions here. I want to ask you what, what you meant by that, but then I also want to follow up with this idea that there's lots of people in the world who get their answers directly from logic and scientific study and, and those types of things. There's also a large group of people who base their answers completely on spiritual feelings uh, or simply taking the word of whatever faith uh, institution they belong to just at face value. I, I want to ask you what you meant by the by the comment, but also how you kind of navigate working through where truth comes from and, and what sources we should trust and how we should arrive at truth. Well, let me go back a ways. Uh, while I was on my mission, or as I arrived on my mission, I had uh, had enough science and things and similar classes to suspect that evolution was probably the way God accomplished the creation. And I soon found that my mission president, Reed Bankhead, was very anti-evolution. And he was an incredible scriptorian and shared with us as missionaries some of the problems with evolutionary theory and suggested that we should support the scriptures. We should believe what God has revealed through his prophets more than the theories of men. And over the period of my mission, I believed that idea. And But I like to support my beliefs with uh, evidence. And so I typically am not one of these people who just... Uh, have such an abundant faith that they don't seem to need evidence or uh, are able to just be able to believe without facts. I love a statement by Austin Ferrer that kind of summarizes this idea. It's in the epigraph of my introduction on page 19. What seems to be proved may not be embraced. But what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. 
I really like that concept. And a fellow that's in our bishopric now shared that with me a lot of years ago, and it, it just resonates with me that, yes, we as believers rely on revelation or inspiration or whatever degree you want to call it, but we... I personally seem to need a little support once in a while. I don't like things not to add up. And having been a bank examiner and auditor type, I like the columns to add up. (laughs) And, And in my estimation, truth is truth from no matter what source. And so when you find truth in science and truth in religion, there's not going to be a conflict. The conflicts are between the theories of men and the truths of religion or the dogmas in religion and the uh, truths in science. But truth is truth. And and so when I indicated, in as you read that quote on page 27, it's unfortunate that the scientific presentations are frequently out of touch with Widzow's admonition. I have really found this over and over in my studies of science and scientific things that so many people just do not make sufficient attempts to distinguish. And oftentimes in trying to convince others of their theories, they just slide over. In fact, I was watching a National Geographic, an old National Geographic program last night, and they were talking about the Leakey family finding the skulls of these uh, so-called predecessors of humans. And those things regarding evolution are inferences from the fossils that they find. And they try to string together the facts and use inference to try to make sense of it or a theory or hypothesis or whatever you want to call it. And rarely do we find that they adequately distinguish between this part of my theory is fact and this part of my theory is inference. In fact, you may have noticed, I quote one scientist, John Pratt, a PhD in astronomy, who says sometimes scientists use the word fact to mean theory. And that really blurs the image as we as non-scientists are trying to understand what they're writing and how much of it really is fact and how much of it really is theory. And just one comment on evolution we may talk about a little later in the this uh, discussion, but uh, one of the authors that I quote in my book, David Collingridge, who's an LDS scientist, he I had sought his permission to use some of his quotes, and he graciously granted it, and then actually read my manuscript for me, and uh, gave some nice feedback, and he has decided now to write a book why LDS students should not uh, just blindly accept evolution or all aspects of evolution, I should add, and asked me to write a chapter for it. And so we've about got that ready and hopefully we'll be getting that sent to the printer in the next week or two. So that book will delve much more into evolution than I do. And there are four authors who are contributing to that book. But he was concerned, as am I, that so much of what is being taught in schools, even at BYU, uh, by the biology department or the geology department, they 
they also, because of what they have studied and memorized and whatever, fail to make this distinction. Well, how, what parts of evolution are true? What parts of other theories are true? And it's really hard to distinguish that. Sometimes you have to dig deep and, and study the rationale and the underlying assumptions beneath the theories that they're coming up with. Yeah, and, and I think that is true. I, I want to throw this out, and this is just something I've, I kind of was thinking about as you were talking about that. There is this kind of need to, to distinguish both what we've been taught within our, our faith and perhaps what God has actually given us as doctrine. And you talked about, you know, being kind of asked to, to rely on the scriptures and to, to trust God's word. But what I find tricky at times in the scriptures is that not everything is meant to be taken literally. And it was a surprise to me about, uh, maybe two years ago to, I had always assumed that the doctrine of the church was that the creation story was to be taken very literally. And it, and I come to understand now that I think Spencer W. Kimball mentions uh, Eve being made from a rib being figurative, that uh, I think Elder McConkie talks about Adam being made from the earth being figurative. And I guess the question comes in is if we're allowed to take at least some of the scriptures figurative or allegorical, and that that allowance really doesn't have a well-defined line, is it is it possible that if one comes to some scientific conclusion that isn't in the scriptures or is taught differently in the scriptures, does one have an allowance then to to be more flexible with one's beliefs? Does that make sense? And that's something that we all struggle, struggle with, those of us who pay attention to these issues, because some of the scientists, in fact, uh, I sent my manuscript to an evolutionary biologist and he was brutal. I mean, he was he was an LDS guy, but uh, was just nasty in his comments of my criticism of evolution. And similarly with a geologist, although not so bad. But those people seem to say, okay, I've studied this discipline in science so much that the scriptures must be figurative. Well, as you point out, certain things likely are, and especially when a general authority says that it, they believe it was, that, that holds some credence to us. Like Adam's rib, I'd always wondered about that. And, and that's when I hear a general authority say that's probably uh, figurative or symbolic or whatever. And how do we distinguish what's symbolic and what is not? I fall back to my mission president's admonition to us that uh, we should hold the scriptures in more reverence. And if there's doubt as to which we should follow, well, <clears throat> do we always accept the scripture instead of the scientific presented to us as facts? <clears throat> that seems to be some of the scientists go take the opposite view. Oh, we found all this information that is so well established now that we need not... Uh, treat those scriptures as fact. Um, as it comes to like the Noah's flood, this has been a major hobby or major interest of mine is a better way to say it since my youth. And if you read the accounts in the scriptures and in the uh, scripture related ancient literature, there is no hint that the flood is anything but a real event. 
And that goes for the Old Testament. It goes for the New Testament references to it. It goes for the Book of Mormon references, as well as the Doctrine and Covenants. They all speak of the flood as a real event. And so for geologists in particular to say, oh, that's symbolic. That was to teach a lesson. I think they are missing some important clues that God has revealed. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I do want to talk about the flood and evolution maybe at greater length, but I want to stop here and just talk about a, a kind of a cool little story. And it's it was kind of neat to come across this because in the past, and I'll just share what I've taught, in the past when I've tried to help, and I served as a bishop for almost five years, when I tried to help people who couldn't make sense of why bad things happened to them, uh, you know, the philosophical uh, problem of evil essentially. And I would talk with with individuals about it. And I always use this story. I always talk about Joseph Smith Sr. And he was in Sharon, Vermont with the Smith family and they were farmers. They bought land, they raised crops. And yet they're in Sharon, Vermont and the, the gold plates are in Palmyra, New York. And somehow God has to get them from one spot to the other. And so we know that Joseph Smith Sr.'s farm failed for several years in a row and it was the impetus for them essentially moving off the land and making their way to Palmyra, New York. And I've always used that story to to help people understand that sometimes bad things do happen in our life, but that God's in charge and he's He's doing things to put us where we need to be. And uh, I thought it was interesting when I was reading on page 79 of your book to come across the story of Mount Tambora. Uh wondered if you might share that and uh, maybe the influence it had on on this whole uh, moving of the Smith family to uh, to Palmyra. A wonderful catch there, Bill, that I'm pleased that you picked that up, too. I should preface my remarks with, I originally wrote this book for the LDS community, but after several rejections from LDS publishers, a friend suggested trying a Christian publisher. So since some Christians don't have a very Christian-like attitude towards the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants, I omitted those references and put them on my website, which I can give people later if they're interested in looking at them. But uh, in the process, then I was able to go through this Christian publisher. And in my LDS version, I do have a little more detail on the Tambora eruption, which took place April 10th, 1815. And that it was such a huge eruption that it caused weather problems, at least throughout the Northern Hemisphere, and then that year, 1815 and 1816, they became known in New England as the year without a summer. Of course, there was summer, but snow fell in some parts and ice formed on the ponds. And so like you, I was pleased to learn of this and realize that that's the same year of the crop failures of the Smith family in Vermont. And apparently, Vermont actually had such a huge exodus at that time that it took many, many years to recover because people, the farmers, just left. They couldn't, uh, it, and it wasn't any fault of their own. It wasn't that Joseph Smith Sr. was an incompetent farmer. It was that the weather just prohibited the growing of good crops. Yeah, yeah, and I think that kind of seeing some of that background you know, if one if one has faith that the restoration is true, then one can begin to look kind of backwards and see the things that caused uh, 
uh, and perhaps, you know, seeing God's hand in it, but what caused those crops to fail and allow that family to then move to Palmyra where the plates are. And, and obviously it's the, the impetus for the, the entire restoration to occur. I, uh, I really enjoyed reading that. I want to move into chapter seven of your book where you do talk about the flood. And I'll, I'll preface it this way. I know that when I look at the scriptures and when I look at what general authorities have taught, it becomes clear that a global flood is the is the preferred lens to to see this event and i don't know that we're really given room to see it outside of that but there also seem to be issues with a global flood um and i'll i'll link this this website i've got and you're welcome maybe in the comments of the of the podcast if somebody has a question on something to, to respond and, and see how we address these. But there are issues with just the building of an ark, the gathering of the animals, fitting the animals aboard, caring for the animals that many over that space of time. Um, the geological record and what we know and don't know that would, would perhaps limit or perhaps support a global flood, uh, species survival, uh, post-flood ecology, species distribution and diversity. In other words, how we go from enough animals that you could actually fit on a ship to having all the diversity that we have today and in that time frame. There just seems to be lots of what we would see as con- conflicting problems with making a global flood fit. But on the other hand, if we take a local flood, that seems to pose issues of its own within the gospel account and within uh, the record of the restoration. And so I just wanted to ask you, I guess, how you've navigated knowing that there there are at least perceived problems on both sides and, and where you come out at. Okay, you're asking a two-and-a-half-hour response question type question. <laughs> I, I realize that, and and I realize too that on some level people are going to have to buy the book to to see your full thoughts on it. But I thought I would at least get how you've navigated it. And that again has been such an intense interest of mine to try to figure it out. And as I got into this as a fairly young adult, when I was uh, in Sugar House area in Salt Lake City. I had an acquaintance who was getting his Ph.D. in geology, and he was also LDS, and I asked him one day at church, I said, I grabbed him between meetings, and I said, do you see from your geological studies any evidence for Noah's flood? And he said, nope. Very abruptly, I was shocked. And he said, we don't see a flood layer. And that kind of shocked me, too. And I thought, okay, a flood layer, what what could that mean? And since then, I've thought and studied much more on the subject and come to the conclusion that if Noah's flood, as described in the scriptures and related sources, is anything close to being accurate, there would have been no surface feature on the earth left untouched and many subsurface features untouched. In other words, there would have been massive changes. And as I've viewed some of the National Geographic and other interesting programs available these days of tsunamis and uh, some of the devastation of floods, I think my former image of this little flood from 40 days of rain and the ark rising and then floating for a while and then landing just doesn't match with the torrential, horrific flooding as water comes in and then as water drains out. And 
As far as the regional type idea, as far as the flood, a lot of people kind of edit it down. And for seems like a lot of years, scientists were afraid to even mention the flood because of the anti-religious aspect that has crept into science. And, you know, Darwin helped to do that, but that's not our subject right now. But the idea that the um, these religion had to stay out of science is kind of what scientists preach and have preached. And, of course, there's an atheistic view of science these days that won't even allow discussion. Well, one of the things that the scientists really don't want to hear about is catastrophes and Noah's flood being, if again, if the scriptures are an accurate indication of that, it was a huge catastrophe. And you read the descriptions and the question comes, hey, it wasn't just 40 days of rain. There were all kinds of geologic issues taking place. Mentions of fountains of the great deep opened up, the windows of heavens heaven opened up. What do those things mean? And we don't uh, fully understand. I, I, for one, want to see the real movie. You know, when I die and go to heaven, or even before, perhaps, see the real movie, not just the Cecil B. DeMille type movie of, or the Steven Spielberg movie of how things happen. I want to see the real event. I, I'm just very curious. But one of the things that seems in my mind to prohibit just the regional type thing. We often remember the 40 days, but do we remember that the ark was on the waters for five months? And then as I put this book together and read the accounts in Genesis and so on more carefully, and I read that even after they landed on Ararat, they did not leave the ark for seven more months. Why? I mean, if that was just a local or regional flood, being in the ark for a year and 17 days does not fit with that perspective. And some of the scientists are now starting to say, well, maybe we can consider the myth of Noah's ark, and but it was just this local thing, or you know, there have been movies written about it being kind of a little wimpy thing. But it, and and if the scriptural account is reasonably accurate, any scientist who fails to take that into consideration is missing key clues that God has shared and answers to some of the questions that they're otherwise just not paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. And and I do think it is it is a difficult topic to delve into. Yeah, because there's just so much on both sides of the issue. And then you have the atheist standing back and saying, well, if you can't make a global flood work and you can't make a local flood work, then you just have to abandon everything. And uh, and so you have kind of these three different angles that you're hitting this issue from. And, and each of them have evidences or what they purport to be evidences. And each of them have problems with the others. And it just becomes really difficult for a Latter-day Saint who wants to, to think uh, these things through and, and not, not just take somebody else's word for it to really delve into this and really get to the bottom of it. And one of the things that has been of a concern to me as I ponder this idea of a global flood versus just a local or regional is the flood claiming to cover the tops of the mountain. How could that be? <laughs> I mean, give me a break. 
Mount Everest is 29,000 feet, and how could the floodwaters get way up there? Uh, anyway, I've got some interesting theories in here. I don't claim to have the answers for sure, but I have found some really intriguing ideas that seem to fit better with the scriptures and some of the things that are claimed to be true, some of the weaknesses in those things. Yeah, and that'll be good. That'll be good for people to check out and, and perhaps shape their view a little bit that allows for it to to stand up to, to some of the adversity that's in some of these problems. I want to move on to Chapter 10, uh, which, where you talk about evolution. So in Chapter 10, where you talk about evolution, and and I just want to get your thoughts. I mean, I guess I, I would start off, and I'll ask maybe two or three questions here. I'd start off by asking just specifically what your stance on evolution is, but then I would throw out there... This idea that, again, we've had leaders speak pretty authoritatively on this subject. And we also have had other leaders, David O. McKay, um, I think that if I'm not mistaken, James Talmadge, uh, John Woodstow, B.H. Roberts were all comfortable with evolution, at least on some level. That evolution gets to be kind of a tricky topic within Mormonism because I think many Latter-day Saints assumed that what Elder McConkie and what Joseph Fielding Smith, President Joseph Fielding Smith said on the topic was authoritative and that they were essentially laying down a line for the church. I do find it interesting that I think there's a lot more room on this issue than many of the members in the general membership think about evolution. But I want to get your thoughts. What's your stance and, and how have you navigated this topic? And uh, do you see room on both sides? Well, first of all, let's define what we mean by evolution, because evolution can be used to mean something from as simple a concept as change. And there's no question, like when you read Elder Widsow's talks and his writings on this subject, he meant, he calls that the law of evolution, change. I mean, do you know any two people on the earth who are exactly the same? No. Do you know any two generations, even father and son, mother and daughter, that are exactly the same? No. That There is a huge amount of change in living things and in life in general. I love a, a description of evolution from Michael Behe, who wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. I don't believe he's an LDS, but if I may, I'll just read this. Evolution is a flexible word. It can be used by one person to mean something as simple as change over time, or by another person to mean the descent of all life forms from a common ancestor. It is in the biological sense, however, evolution means, or in its biological sense, however, evolution means a process whereby life arose from non-living matter and subsequently developed entirely by natural means. That is the sense Darwin gave to the word. So if we can break apart the word evolution and say, okay, what parts of it are really true? Well, change is clearly true. A certain amount of diversity is clearly true. Going back to the flood story that Noah and his three sons and their wives populated the earth after the flood, how can that be? How can they have put enough creatures on the ark to populate what we see today? Those are questions that have come to my mind, and I think I've got some pretty intri intriguing possibilities here. 
you mentioned people like James Talmadge and David O. McKay being somewhat sympathetic to evolution. I think if we break the word apart, we all have to say, well, certain aspects of evolution are clearly true, but other aspects are clearly supposition, speculation, and really are not supported by the facts as they are purported to be. And that, again, in fact, Elder Widso made a comment about the failure to adequately distinguish facts and inferences. And he said that's the most grievous and the most common sin of scientists. And he also mentioned that we, especially in evolution, we need to have this distinction. Well, what's really true and what's not? And again, even programs today, and and I, some of the things that I hear and read just perplex me that they are presented as though fact. Uh, so many people are familiar with Darwin's study of the 13 species of finches on the Galapagos Islands, and they say, okay, so that's proof of evolution. Well, it's proof of diversity one aspect of evolution, but does that prove that a piece of slime in some remote part of the earth all of a sudden became a living thing, and then from that living thing, spontaneously, without any help from God, evolved into a single-celled creature and into multi-celled creatures and into crawly things and then finally to humans, um, that's the part of evolution that I don't think those brethren would support, and especially those brethren who do have the strong belief in the scriptures. So to me, we have to make the distinction, and we have to make the distinction between what is really supported by enough evidence. If we find a funny-looking, humanoid-type-looking creature, is that really our ancestor like the Leakeys and so many anthropologists suggest? Or is it just that God created a lot of variety on the Earth and some of the information from scientists outside the Church of the Red suggests that some of those extinction events, like is now believed to have killed the dinosaurs, killed 90% of the things that were living on Earth at that time, not just the dinosaurs. And so those huge events like cometary impacts and so on have made a major difference. Uh, assuming that you believe in a literal garden on that where Adam and Eve were placed uh, and, and then referring hence to the fall, do you believe there was no death before the fall as the scriptures teach or... Is it, is it simple as a yes or no, or is that a nuanced answer? Well, who are we to believe? Are we to believe a prophet who is speaking in the Book of Mormon where he says there was no death before the fall? Or are we to believe the scientists who are looking at fossils and making all these suppositions, supposing that? And I tend to favor, and, and we don't, like you say, we so much of this has not been revealed. So... How do we know? Well, if I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of the prophet. And so I I really think that the evidence from scriptures and from words of our apostles and prophets that the earth was created in a paradisiacal condition, a paradise, 
and that Adam would have not died had the fall not taken place. How that really works out, I don't know. I, I again, want to see the real movie, but, hey, let's not uh, discount the scriptures just because of some scientists scientific theories that scientists have pro- proposed, especially those from scientists who are definitely atheistic and trying to convince believers that they shouldn't be believers, or they should be right. believers in their scientific theories, not in the truths of the gospel. Right, right. And, and I'm torn on this issue in some ways, because, you know, I look at, you know, I know that scientists make the argument that when we talk about dogs, for instance, that it started off, we had a wolf and, and a wolf over years had changes to him. And, and all of a sudden we look, you know, a couple of thousand years later, and now we've got chihuahuas and, and collies and Labrador retrievers and bull mastiffs. And, you know, you name it from, from giant, uh, giant dogs to really tiny things, to things that have one color of hair to something that has no hair at all. And, and my mind begins to wonder if changes like that were allowed to take place not only over thousands of years, but hundreds of thousands of years and perhaps millions of years, what we end up with as we move down the line. And yet, while I think about that and say, okay, that's plausible, the other side of me says there's such a difference between, say, a dolphin and a Labrador retriever that to say these two animals go back to some common ancestor that becomes pretty difficult to to make work. And so I, I guess in some ways I'm on the fence, and, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners are as well, and I guess they'll just have to, to turn to the book and see some of the thoughts that you've got on evolution because I think it's it's a subject that, like the flood, is is difficult to kind of uh, to navigate. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons I like to study this kind of thing because there are some clues out there. I don't know that we have definitive answers on a lot of them, but really one of the questions that I pose in my book is how many dogs were on Noah's Ark? And we don't know. Probably just two, though, based on the descriptions of how many animals they came two by two, and then some of the creatures were by sevens. So how many snails were there? One of the quotes that I like uh is that uh, I believe one of the popular magazines on science had given a description and said in in Hawaii there are just, I forget how many different varieties of snails. And I think to myself, well, are, aren't they still snails? Yes. And uh, like the Galapagos Islands finches, the v- many varieties of finches that have evolved or changed or d- diversified. <sighs> what is a species? We don't even have a clear, unified description, definition of what a species is. And so if we say that there are all these varieties of snails, well, they're still snails, which brings the question, and one thing that comes up very clearly in this book that we're putting together, and I believe David Collingridge has just sent it to a publisher to see if they'll publish it for us, is that there is a big distinction between what's called microevolution, that's these minor changes, and some of the DNA studies these days are just, it's amazing what capacity living things have for minor changes. But macroevolution, or large-scale changes, have not been demonstrated. 
you cannot find, you cannot see in a laboratory. You can see laboratory changes in bacteria, but they stay bacteria. You see laboratory changes or in real life changes on moth color and so on, but they're still moths. What you don't see is a moth turning into a bird or something like that. And I listened to a scholar, some scholars on the subject of science LDS scholars, and one of them mockingly talking of people like me who don't accept that uh, the microevolution and macroevolution are just a continuum. He said something to the effect that they don't believe in, they believe in inches, but not in feet. And I thought, well, that's kind of catchy, but let me think about this. And well, inches and feet we use all the time and are easily demonstrated. It depends on the purpose. Are you trying to measure something short or something long? But that does not mean that because we see hair color change in generations and we see people larger now than they were a hundred years ago because of improved diet and better medications and so on. Uh, that doesn't mean evolution on a macro scale. The people aren't turning into superhumans, bionic men or something like that. And so macroevolution, there, there's a great little video on the Internet about a guy who he interviews. It's a 12-minute video. He interviews people who have uh, who believe in evolution. He says, what evidence can you give me that macroevolution takes place. And he asks a bunch of scientists and other people, just students and so on, and they try to cite some of the things from history. He said, oh, no, that's microevolution. Give me an evidence of demonstrated macroevolution. They say, well, millions of years ago. No, we, we can't take millions of years ago. We can't observe millions of years ago. So anyway, it's really a fun video. I, I'll have to get you the reference to that. But uh, microevolution is demonstrable. Macroevolution that Darwinian evolution relies upon is not. It's supposition based on some observations. So it, it seems like, if I'm understanding you right, that while you agree with microevolution and while you acknowledge that it is possible in theory that perhaps million year, a million years of microevolutionary uh, instances happening with the same creature over and over again that that might lead to drastic changes if we go back from you know what the end result is a million years later to what the the species look like at the beginning but at the same time not once in our recorded history do do we have <clears throat> sorry not once in our recorded history do we have any example of of us being able to actually look back and say, here's here's this animal 2,000 years ago, here's this animal today, and we don't have any drastic change uh, to, to evidence that macroevolution actually occurs. Of course, the evolutionists look at fossils and they say, well, this fossil, this guy had a real funny-looking skull, and, and then here's another one that uh, is a little closer to what we see as humans or we're like as humans. But uh, also I can walk around downtown Salt Lake City and see quite vastly different skulls even now, not that it's on the same level, but were those really ancestors or were they not? Was Adam really placed on the earth and Eve as distinct individuals or did they just evolve up from some subhuman species and all of a sudden 
this generation we'll call human and the previous generation we'll call non-human, uh, that's pretty iffy. And, but they present it as though it's solid fact. And so that's a concern to those of us who are challenging some of these concepts of evolution. Not all of them, because some are obviously true, but some of the concepts just don't fit with the scriptures and who are going to believe the scriptures or the theories of men. Right. And I, and I want to hit on that for a moment. Brigham Young, uh, you have a, a quote uh, I believe it's on page 340 and 341, where Brigham Young suggested that living things were brought here from elsewhere. Uh, he says, uh, the quote says, Shall I say that the seeds of vegetables were planted here by the characters that framed and built this world, that the seeds of every plant composing, veg- composing the vegetable kingdom were brought here from another world? This would be news to many of you. And so Brigham Young seems to be speaking authoritatively, at least on some level, and seems to be suggesting that the components of this earth, uh, at least some of those components, came from other worlds. And, and let me pose what the, the Latter-day Saint who, who tries to deal with these issues by, through study and, and trying to come to grips with some of this, what he realizes is that LDS leaders have said some things in the past somewhat authoritatively that we now know don't don't make a whole lot of sense doesn't make a whole lot of sense so for instance Brigham Young and Joseph Smith talking about people living on the sun and on the moon and we'll have other instances in our history where a leader has said something and you go you know we just have to be able to toss that out as him just speaking because of the culture around him or because of his experience being limited and yet throughout our interview today the plea has been that we we should put those things that the prophets say at first and foremost, which I agree with. But the issue comes in is how do we discern then when a prophet is speaking as a prophet and when we can find points that we don't have to defend and we can set them off to the side as, as Brigham Young just speaking based on the culture of his day or some whimsical idea that he simply came up with. Uh, I'll give one more example, which is definitive. You have Brigham Young early on in church history teaching the Adam-God theory, and then you have Spencer W. Kimball and anybody from that point forward essentially saying that that was incorrect and wrong. And so you have essentially two prophets who are, in a sense, disagreeing with each other. How do we navigate some of the, the what I would call the silly things that leaders have said, yet and still trying to hold on to hold on to what they're saying generally as being prophetic counsel? Well, being the know-it-all that I am, just kidding, um, I have to say I don't understand all that. And I don't understand when one prophet says something. And, and Brigham Young used to kind of shoot from the hip a lot. And how much of what he said is actually uh, truth? Um, he didn't usually say, well, thus saith the Lord. Here is wisdom directly from God versus just spouting off on things. And so we don't really know. And someday I want to know the answers to those questions. But we do have inspired prophets and inspired leaders who do say some things that are really incredibly wonderful and bring us closer to God. And then we have other things that tend to be kind of divisive. I look forward to the day when I'll know all those answers. But I certainly don't claim to at this point. Yeah, and I think that's what I love about the book, uh, David, is that you have this 
this book which delves into all these complicated issues and yet you've been very humble in saying look I don't I don't know the definitive answer I'm just for the time being I'm going to trust in in the council of prophets seers and revelators and I'm going to try and make what they've said and what we've been taught throughout the scriptures mesh and make sense and reconcile it the best I can and yet you seem to always be leaving the door open that that something could change and I appreciate that because I think people on both sides don't do that uh, they'll they'll take a position and they say look I've come to this conclusion this is where I'm at and there's nothing left to learn either the church is you know absolutely perfect and there's no flaw within it or the church is absolutely false and I've got to get as far away from it as I possibly can and yet I think what you're acknowledging is that things are messier than that and yet where we can there's room to find ways to mesh these a lot better than what the critics would would argue, and I appreciate uh, that perspective. I want to finish with with one last question, then I want to ask you specifically about the book itself. Um, on page 344 and 345, there's this quote that I found very fascinating. It says, uh, one aspect of evolution is definitively unacceptable to the Latter-day Saints, according to Reed Bankhead. Any theory that leaves out God as a personal, purposeful being and accepts chance as a first cause cannot be accepted by the Latter-day Saints. Now, I get that the quote doesn't come from you directly, but I want to get your thoughts on the quote, whether you you agree with that or not. And, and then I want to kind of ask maybe a follow-up question to that once I hear your answer. Yeah, Reed Bankhead was my mission president in the Kimura mission. And uh, yes, I agree with that, that... Uh, there, there are so many things that we don't really understand and certain things the prophets have really specified and really clearly delineated, but other things we're left to use some faith and use some belief. Are we going to accept the words of the prophets over the words of the scientists or are, as many people do, and many people lose their faith by saying, oh, science is so real that we are going to abandon our faith. And science has some wonderful facts. I love science. But some of the pronouncements that scientists make are really way out of line when they speak of these evolutionary concepts, as some of them, as being fact, when in reality they're supposition and based on facts, but they're interpretations of facts. And did I really answer your question or am I missing part of it? But yeah, President Bankhead was very influential in my life and my beliefs in trying to make sense of these things. And I, I believe that he was on the right track, that uh, what God has revealed takes precedence over the theories of man. But there are some interesting theories out there. I love science. I love exploring these things. But who should we believe ultimately? It's God and his prophets and the revelations given. But uh, also, like you say, sometimes I think Brother Brigham uh, speculated a little bit. And sometimes he, he went off on some tangents. But who knows? I, I look forward to the day when we all get to learn all the details of these things. And it'll be it'll be wonderful. But it'll make sense then. Yeah, yeah. Even even Brigham Brigham once said that you know he admitted that he was a Yankee guesser, and I think that that he's he was he would self admittedly say that uh, that sometimes he was shooting from the hip. Um, I think that 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 is something maybe we probably ought to get to all know 
uh, our leaders better to just understand that they they realize that on some level that they weren't infallible in every word that they said. But you make a good distinction. And what I found from this this uh, brother Bankhead from President Bankhead's quote is this idea that God cannot be a hands off God that he that he is you know completely involved in what's going on here in this world. And I see evidence for that, but I also struggle with that as well when I see, for instance, uh, the church having taught back in the 1940s and, and other times as well, some of these theories behind why why blacks weren't allowed to have the priesthood. And then the church in the last year has come forward and said, look, you know, we, we did share some of these thoughts in the past. We did... Uh, Teach them in some ways authoritatively, but they're just they're just theories, and we disavow them at this point. And then when I think about some of the the offensiveness that those theories had for years and years and years, I struggle sometimes to see God as a very hands on God. I see Him. I almost for me to reconcile it, I almost have to see Him as being hands off for long periods of time and just letting His children make their way through things and allow them to kind of mess some things up. And, and so I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the, the quote in regards to whether God is a hands-on God, whether he's a hands-off God, or whether maybe it's a combination of the two. Well, sometimes I kind of feel like he's a hands-off God, especially with me and my lack of ability to communicate effectively with him. And other times I see his hand in so many ways that, <clears throat> excuse me, I am just astounded. And someday we'll know all these details and, and things will fit together beautifully. But in the meantime, we're given, we're put in a position where we are asked to exercise some faith and to try to uh, follow his will, God's will, to the best of our ability. And we'll be judged based on what we're given and what he expects of us and what he's asked of us. I don't know that that really answers your question, but no, no, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I, and I, like I said, I really appreciate it. I, I like, like you, I have felt God very directly on some of the smallest things in my life. And then I look sometimes at history and I, and I wonder why great atrocities are allowed to occur that, that are left to do damage for decades and, and I struggle with that, but but as you're pointing out, there are times where God is so direct, even in the minutia of the day, that to see him as completely hands-off simply doesn't fit for me, and it sounds like it doesn't fit for you either. I uh, I want to finish. We've, we're sitting down today with David Barker, uh, author of Reconciling the Conflict, Science and Religion. Uh, David, where can people find your book? First of all, its title is Science and Religion, Reconciling the Conflict, just for some reason, the publisher wanted to put it the other way on the cover, but if you look on the inside, it's Science and Religion Reconciling the Conflict. And it's available at uh, a lot of different sources. Of course, I haven't been all over the country looking in bookstores, but a lot of bookstores have it. Certainly on the Internet, there are some really good sources. Of course, Amazon's got it, uh, barnesandnoble.com, uh, Deseret Book has it on their internet and at least one of the stores here in Bountiful where I live and others um, there are lots of other books like if you just do a search on it lots of other bookstores online that have it and so it's available 
quite a few places. In fact, Walmart.com even has it now, abebooks.com. And so it's available at a lot of places, and we'll hope that uh, people's lives are blessed by reading it. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I have a lot of good questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, David Barker, author of Science and Religion, uh, Reconciling the Conflicts. You, you're right, though. If, you, if you're on Walmart's uh, website, that, that seems to indicate that you've done something right. And so I, my hat goes off to you, and this book, I think, is wonderful. I really enjoyed reading different uh, different portions of the book and preparing for this interview. And, and I often think that we we make this big divide between science and religion, and yet and yet we've been told by our leaders, prophets, seers, and revelators, that truth can be gathered in through both. They are both vehicles for, for delivering truth to us. And I appreciate you for, for essentially putting the two together and, and uh, just wanted to say thank you for being on today. Thank you very much, Bill. I appreciate speaking with you and hope your listeners will enjoy our comments as well. Taking